1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Tea with HB is for everyone who dreams of a better world. Together, let's brew a new reality. Accountability. Noun. The process of evaluating school performance on the basis of student performance. An alternative definition could be the main reason teachers, parents and children across the country are stressed to the point of ill health. Accountability is responsible for the UK having the unhappiest children in Europe. And here to help me unpack this, as well as identify the other issues within the education system, is Dr Deborah Kidd. Deborah is a teacher, author and trainer, and one of the reasons she is extraordinary is because she has professional experience in every phase of education, from nursery through to postgraduate. This conversation is packed with her imaginative but practical solutions for the current school system, and I am so grateful for her incredible insight. So join me with a cup of fresh mint tea, because we are talking innovation and fresh ideas. Hi, Deborah. Welcome to Tea with HB. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for asking me. So we're talking about accountability. A lot of people might never have heard of that, and especially within this context. So could you explain what that means?
2: Well, there are formal uh, kinds of accountability in education. So, for example, people will probably have heard of Ofsted. Um, and ofsted is the organization appointed by government that is supposed to be independent uh, and that has oversight of the education system and not just schools but also nursery settings uh, and childcare settings as well so all schools are held accountable to ofsted and will have inspections from ofsted um, and i think what most teachers would say to you and head teachers, is that Ofsted probably acts as the biggest driver for their behaviour in terms of setting the expectations and the habits of mind in schools. That's
1: really sad, isn't it? Because we want a system, I think you agree with me here, where we're kind of putting the child first and we want to prioritise their needs above this external organisation. So you've been a teacher and are a teacher, right? Yes, yes. How has accountability affected you personally in your career? I feel like I'm, I'm a little
2: bit freed from it now because when I go into schools I'm working with them rather than in them. But it, Ofsted was certainly one of the drivers that put me in a position where I felt like I wanted to get out of the mainstream day to day. Because it's, it warps behaviour and in a lot of schools the, the impending inspection and the paperwork that inspectors might be looking for or the questions they might ask or the things they might focus on become the most important thing. And sometimes that means you end up spending time filling in a spreadsheet rather than planning a good lesson for children. Um, It means that you have less time to sit one-to-one with that child who's struggling because their parents are getting divorced or they're struggling with their mental health or with their anxiety. It drains the time that's available for the stuff that most people went into teaching to do.
1: And speaking of mental health, I feel like teachers get stressed because of it. Especially perhaps in primary, Uh, if you're not listening in the UK, we have exams called SATs at the end of year six. So when you're 10 or 11 years old and those exams are very stressful. I remember them being very stressful, Um, even though they don't affect your personal career as a student that much they're very important for the teachers in the school. And that stress that comes from the accountability from Ofsted does leak down into the way the lessons are taught, doesn't it? It
2: definitely does. And of course, Ofsted will base part, not all, but a a good part of their judgment on the results that a school gets. And all schools are pretty much treated equally. So if you have a higher number of students with special educational needs or higher disadvantage and poverty... That is not taken into account in any way, particularly at primary yeah. level. At secondary level, there is something called Progress 8, which is supposed to try and moderate a little bit some of those factors, but it doesn't really. In fact, some research yeah. from, ed- from the data lab, the education data lab, showed that disadvantaged students were more disadvantaged through Progress 8 than, than they would normally have been.
1: Yeah. And it's it's really important to understand and be aware of that because I think when you're a student within the system, you really don't know how you're being measured. You don't know what goes on behind the scenes. You don't know how it works. And if you're interested in it like I am, you'll have looked into it a little bit more. And it's shocking to me that things like even the way you're parented. So your parents might not have time to have a conversation with you over dinner. You know, you might not be eating dinner as a family, and that affects your communication skills. Or you might not have a family computer, you might not have books in your home, you know, all these different things that can really be detrimental to your educational well-being and progress.
2: Well, we've, we've seen that very clearly, haven't we, recently, in the, the, the gap opening up between children who could access online learning, who had a quiet place to go, access to the technology and the skills to access the technology, as well as some parental support. The, the, the gap that widened between those children and those who didn't exactly. was quite astonishing.
1: exactly. And it's uh, it's really heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for me to see when I'm so passionate about this and I want to change it and I'm just not there in time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But let's talk about that because I found you through your blog post, um, What Went Wrong With The Exams In 2020. And I'm going to quote you here. You said, the endemic problem in our society is the belief that people are out to cheat their way to the top. And you also mentioned that the way the algorithm worked in this year's exams was that about 4% of students wouldn't get the grade they deserved.
2: Yes, so in any given year, and particularly since we moved to a linear system, so under Michael Goh, when Michael Goh was at the, de- the Department for Education, he brought an end to things like coursework and modular exams. And moved us to a a linear exam where students sit all of their exams at the end of two years, in which case, you know, for for some GCSE students, that means around about 20 to 25 exams within a three week period. It's quite extreme stress. And as you would expect, under that extreme stress, within that two or three week period, some children underperform. They either underperform because they're anxious, they underperform because they're bereaved, they underperform because their dog died or they broke up with their girlfriend, boyfriend. It comes, they have a cold. And they have a bad day, they had hay fever, whatever it is. Um, and of course, we sort of accept that as collateral damage within the system because we haven't really unpicked how unfair that is. Um, and so when Ofqual approached the, the request from government to not have any grade inflation, to try and keep the grading the same, they had to kind of factor in this 40% of uh, people having a bad day. But of course, you can't allocate that fairly or in any kind of reasonable way. So we ended up with children who, you know, in terms of the comparison between what their teachers thought they were capable of based on the work they produce, not under stress, um, we, we ended up with a massive disparity.
1: And that's one of the advantages that coursework and things like AS levels had, is that there was a lot more internal assessment and your teacher who knew you measuring how you worked, which obviously, you know, you can't do that for everything. But that does have a huge advantage in a situation like COVID. Yeah, well it's like
2: an insurance policy and particularly the idea of modular exams or for example you gave the example there of the AS. You know, there is some evidence to suggest that schools and colleges that had kept the AAS had a more accurate grading yeah. system. Um so I think that's a grave error of government's judgment to get rid of the AS. It it it, oh. it did more than just split the A level into two halves. It gave you a clear sense at the end of the first year. Of what the potential of each student was likely to be, um, which is reassuring for universities as well.
1: Yeah, and it's it seems to be based on this belief that not not everyone can pass each year, which inherently is so foolish. Because if you're if you're telling a child, well, we don't expect you to pass anyway. Oh, then they're not going to you know that that all has an effect as well. So this idea that that people are out to cheat their way to the top, as you said it is it it's in everything it's not just in schools but i'd say the education system is responsible for a lot of that ethos if you like. well
2: it 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 has long a long tail of repercussions when you think of the number of for example of students who leave school with no qualifications who end up not in education or training what we call neets uh, the impact that has on crime statistics on poverty deprivation health outcomes yeah. you know it's it's huge and I don't think many people understand that we have a norm-referenced system rather than a criteria reference system. So it, people tend to think that if you achieve a certain standard, you get a certain grade, but that's not how the system works. The system works by as, as much as six months in advance deciding exactly how many students are going to get which grades and allocating those places, and then it's just a matter of the rank order kicking in then.
1: And for a lot of universities, the only thing they're looking at could be those grades. That grade could be the difference between accepting you and someone else. You know, obviously extracurricular things come into it as well, but grade will often be a deciding factor for employers and universities And I think it's terrible that we have a system that doesn't accurately represent the person. No,
2: I mean, Ofqual's own research in 2017 and 2018 showed that subjects like English and history, which perhaps are a little bit more subjective than, say, maths and physics, but those subjects had a 50% margin of error in terms of the, the examiner getting the mark wrong. And yet the only students who get their marks adjusted are the ones who can afford to pay for a remark.
1: And that's another discrimination, isn't it?
2: Huge, huge discrepancies and discriminations and fault lines across the whole system. But I think the effort of changing it is so great and and requires so much imagination that people don't feel they've got the appetite for it.
1: Well, because the people with the imaginations aren't put in charge.
2: On the whole, the people who've succeeded in the system end up controlling the system. And
1: so you you have less of a vested interest in changing it. Exactly. Exactly so well put and it's really important to note that actually just just like covid it this does affect everybody the system doesn't actually work for anyone you know covid could affect everyone not just the most vulnerable because you can develop chronic illnesses and autoimmune diseases from viral infections so in the same way in the school system just because it's working for you that's not necessarily a good thing because is it really working for you Because at some point you'll have been discriminated against not just because you're black or minority ethnic, although they are often downgraded the most each year in A-levels and things. Um, but also if you're disabled, I mean, if like you said, if you have hay fever, if you have asthma, if you get a cold, all these things that could happen to anybody at any time. Becoming disabled could happen to anybody at any time. This can affect your performance in an exam. So it's ridiculous to base your entire career at this one exam at mm. the end. Yes, it is.
2: And I, I think we also need to consider that, you know, around 50% of young people at the age of 18 do go to university, but the other half don't. And, and there isn't enough thought and provision put into that half of, of our society. We need better quality apprenticeships. We need to elevate the status of vocational qualifications. Um, you know, we all scramble around, don't we, for a plumber. We all scramble around for an electrician and complain that we can't find <laughs> one. Um, but we don't invest the same kind of status and the same kind of effort into ensuring that those roles that keep our society going yeah. and our homes functioning... Um, are just as necessary as you know the doctor or the lawyer or the teacher who goes to university
1: and if you ask anyone what they want society to be like they didn't enjoy school they don't want it to be as competitive as school was and if you ask a parent what do you want your child to be you know they say happy that doesn't include all this stress that exams bring
2: lots of contradictions you know parents say they want their children to be happy but then get very very anxious about the grades and you only have to you only have to look at areas where we have grammar school systems and the amount of money parents spend on private tuition to try and get their children through that 11 plus to see how the happiness argument falls apart a little bit when your child is in a competitive field
1: and in the same way students behaviors are shaped by their parents so the parents' attitudes really need to be the first to change. And I'm not sure it's enough to say, oh, we're raising a generation that will be the parents that don't care as much about grades. Like, it has to happen now, because things like climate change, it's not going to solve itself. We all have to be on the same page of this is our priority, this is the society we want, these are the people we want to be leading us.
2: Well, I think this is the big question generally for the human species, but particularly I think in in societies where the individual has been prioritised over the communal or you know the 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 social Um, and when we have these kind of highly individualistic societies they they function on the fact that although there is inequality and unfairness people hope very much that they will be in the other half
1: yeah it's if you put enough hard work in you'll get there or you know and it's actually just all about luck (laughs) timing spend a little money here, your child will pass, if you do this,
2: this will happen, you can protect your family from X, Y and Z. Mm. People are in this game, which is actually really stressful. And it was really interesting to note, there was a study from Bristol, I think it was Bristol University, and during just after lockdown, that showed actually young people's mental health improved, didn't get worse in lockdown, it actually improved, which went against the received wisdom of of what people were thinking Um, and one of the reasons for that and not long after that the OECD study came out that we have the the unhappiest teenagers in Europe Um, and I think I think what we're seeing there is the way that competition and stress in the exam system is is affecting young people um, that, that idea of, you know, my, my son's in year nine at the minute and he's, he was only back for five days before his whole year group was sent home to self isolate for two weeks because of some cases. He loved being back, but in that first week, the message he was getting from teachers constantly was this is about GCSEs now, you're in year nine, by the time you yes. get to year 10, it's too late, you've got to prepare, you've got to lay the ground now. And, you know, he's taking, absorbing it's all It's He's absorbing it.
1: And it's the teacher's stress. It's the teacher's stress again coming down. Happens in secondary schools too.
2: When he does go into self-isolation and misses two weeks school, he's not just thinking, oh, I'm missing my friends, I'm missing school. He's thinking, <laughs> I'm going to mess up my GCSEs, which are in three years' time. And that's a ridiculous...
1: Situation to be put. Where else in life are you stressing that amount for something that's not going to happen for another two years? And what can you do right now that's really going to affect that? Because you, you will ask people, people will say, "I don't remember what I said in my GCSE exams." You know, they did not remember a month later, let alone three years later. So we talk about laying a foundation when actually that's quite inaccurate. And it also worries me that we're not prioritising skills like communication. It's Almost as if we have generations upon generations of brainwashed children being told, this is what matters, this is what matters. And they don't know how the system works. And if you just pull back the curtain, you can see how flawed it is and how it doesn't define you. And yet you've got children all over the country throwing up out of anxiety and sobbing over their exam grades. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah,
2: it is. It is heartbreaking. Yeah, and and the saddest thing about it is, it's completely unnecessary.
1: It is, and what standardised testing has done has turned children into this. They're data. Children have been turned into data. When they're actually a valuable resource, they're the ones with imagination and creativity. And we should be fostering that and cultivating it rather than ripping it out of them for the sake of some league table and accountability.
2: If we if we approach the education system simply with the question of let's help, or, you know, the the, the, the intention of let's help you find your place in this world, then we'd have a completely different outcome. Because we wouldn't necessarily assume that an academic outcome was going to be the place for everybody um, or what they desired or wanted. And that's not having low expectations. That's not, I know it can sometimes manifest itself in bias, but actually, if it's done equably and fairly, then you end up with a society where people feel like they got to the place they belonged.
1: Feel like they matter. What children aren't being told is that they inherently matter. Every human inherently has value. Everything inherently has value. And so, don't don't judge yourself by a grade or by that magazine or whatever. You're enough as you are. And if that was the intention behind school, we'd probably have the happiest children in Europe. I
2: suspect we would,
1: and the happiest teachers happiest teachers exactly yeah because teachers matter too and they are not given enough respect
2: they don't they don't want to do this on the whole teachers don't want to be whipping children through sats and whipping them through their gcses i'd like to think no
1: one's intent is to hold a whip You know, no one wants to end up in that role of pushing someone until they break. No.
2: And, and when you get a disconnect between somebody's fundamental values and the reality of the job that they're they being asked be to do,
1: about
2: their career, they can't terrible. can't, or worse, they start to fracture and you start to get this disassociation yeah. and this, this, this depletion of empathy yeah. um, because people are just yeah. exhausted.
1: Mental health is not only a student problem and... I think teaching is actually one of, if not the hardest job, because it never stops. You're always, if you're a good teacher, you're always thinking about your children. You're always thinking about your students and how you can plan the next lesson and what you can help them with. So mental health applies to all age groups and it's not treated like that. Yeah, completely agree. So how are we going to help the class of 2021 and beyond what would your ideal alternate system to all this be how would you replace standardized testing
2: um well i I think we've got two two big sort of issues haven't we at the moment we've got the short-term issue of covid and and how we deal with that and in the immediate short term uh, if i were in charge i'd be well first of all mandating that children wear masks in class i'd be putting them on a rotor. oh god terrible that it even needs to be said I know um so they could socially distance if they were on a rotor and providing families with the technology and, and teachers with the training they need that that's the immediate thing that needs to be done we also need an immediate step on the exams uh, the exams for next year I and mean, it's a no-brainer they should just cancel the primary exams for next year because they have no no benefit in terms of progression.
1: Cancel them forever.
2: Well, I would cancel I mean. them forever, indeed, yeah, I would. Um, but with the GCSEs and the A levels now, they need to be having a continual assessment, a coursework, and low stakes testing combination that is then moderated internally by the teachers then moderated in a cluster of schools locally so that there's inter kind of school competition acting as a moderating force and then going to the national exam boards for moderation which is what used to happen with coursework that needs to be done immediately and it needs to be done now and then long term i think we need to open up that conversation about the validity of our exam system and, and about the well-being and the purpose of education, um, and in that long term, immediately I would get rid of of primary Sats, and I'd used I'd move to a portfolio-based system. So the primary schools put forward to secondary schools a portfolio of children's work and achievements, and that's the whole child, the sporting child, the artistic child, as well as the English and maths results. Mm. Um, That would help with the transition. Transition points between Year 6 and Year 7 are really difficult for children, and children end up often going back, um, partly because there's a a misunderstanding. I I started off as a secondary teacher and uh, worked in primary and felt like the scales had fallen from my eyes and realised that in Key Stage 3, as a secondary school teacher, I'd been teaching stuff they were doing in Year 3 and 4. And assuming that when I sat in front of a year seven class and said, so can you tell me about alliteration and they were quiet, it meant they didn't know. It simply meant they were in a new school, a bit overwhelmed, overloaded, and they didn't want to be the one who put their hand up and spoke out in class. So there's all sorts of stuff that a portfolio system a much more coherent transition between primary and secondary would
0: solve.
1: about the environment you create as well for the children, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Because the idea that raising your hand is a terrifying thing that shouldn't exist that shouldn't be the norm
2: yeah the fear of getting things wrong the fear of forgetting someone's name you know i'd say that was the overriding preoccupation for my own children of year seven that was it
1: and actually once you leave school everyone tells you mistakes are what you want to be making because that's what you learn from
2: I think there's that. I also think we really need to look again at early years education. I think we rush children into formal education way too soon. And there's growing bodies of evidence now showing that countries that delay the start of formal education to the year where children turn Hello. seven.
1: Yeah. Not but, but not just
2: Finland, Singapore,
1: you know, so many countries. Yeah. yeah, who knew there was a benefit to letting children just be children?
2: I know. And it's not that they don't go to educational settings; they do, but they go to educational settings where the focus life is an the...
1: educational setting <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> but the focus is on their social development, their vocabulary development, their creative development, and so that they're ready for school when they start. And there was there was a really interesting study, I think, from Stanford University a couple of years ago that showed that children who delayed the start of school had lower incidences of ADHD diagnoses and better self-regulation at the age of 11. And we know that children who have good self-regulation at the age of 11 tend to achieve better at 16 and 18. So it seems to me to be a no-brainer to reform that aspect. And then, of course, as we've already said, we've got to look at the other end um, and the emphasis we place on vocational academic routes
1: for children. Apprenticeships and things like that. Yeah. And also someone who, for various reasons, including health and disability, isn't at uni. You can have quite a nice life if you don't follow that crowd and you're not doing an apprenticeship and you don't have a job and you're not at uni. You can still live and it's still valid. Yeah, of course. Of course.
2: It worries me that the the conversations we have around disability and illnesses are, well, they're really frightening, I think statistics that came out that 59% of people who died from Covid had a disability and you would think that would fill us with horror but instead we get people shrugging their shoulders and saying oh well they were already ill they already had something so it doesn't matter and I think what kind of society have we created when that's the way we think.
1: Yeah and it's it's really interesting in this environment in this culture we have at the moment non-disabled people some of them are really coming out as being really ableist and saying, well, it doesn't matter because they're such a small population anyway and, you know, they're not clearly not healthy enough to survive, so why should they be here? But you hear all these horrible things. And then other people are realising for the first time how inaccessible society is and how people with disabilities have been coping with battling for things like remote learning and remote working environments for so long and not being given them. And finally they're in the limelight almost and i really don't know why it's not making headlines because at the start of all this you know we were the ones saying oh don't worry i've been housebound for ages here are some tips and we're just th- you know thrown uh, brushed under the rug mm. again yeah i think that's true. true we first came out of lockdown you know the first things to be removed are disabled parking spaces in name for social distancing and ramps are being mm. removed mm. access is being removed yeah and, we
2: we have we, we do too little to address those issues and in schools as well you know we're seeing an alarming number of schools now who for example will have behavior policies insisting that children make eye contact with adults and oh we know, god no yeah and we know that for autistic children that becomes such a barrier that in effect it becomes a yeah. form of excluding children from schools if you're the parent of an autistic child and you read that behavior policy you know your child can't function in that setting so what choice do you have except to go somewhere else
1: and similarly with attendance when you get rewards for good attendance that is so ableist that is ignoring everyone with a chronic health problem that's an example of
2: how accountability warps behaviour because as soon as Ofsted and the government started asking schools to put forward attendance data and holding them accountable to attendance data, schools pushed that pressure down onto children.
1: And the children become the data again.
2: And what that means is that anyone who can't attend, um, you know, for whatever reason, becomes a problem, becomes somebody that is you know, putting the school in the way of some negative judgment. And it
1: could be because you have three siblings and they all go to different schools and your mum's doing a school run and you arrive late. It's not just because of illness. The whole attendancy thing is just ridiculous.
2: But, uh, yeah, it, it it creates an impression and, and in some cases a reality of, of a very unkind society that just can't cope with anything that sits outside of that ableist norm.
1: And people with special needs are separated into different classrooms you know different buildings sometimes even and actually as a society I think inclusion is really the key to to unity to solving these problems we have diversity and inclusion are the keys they are and so separating people as if oh I'm better than you that's not the kind of society we want so why are we fostering it
2: and and I think the there is a difficulty there because I've I've worked in some special schools and the the quality of education and care that those children are getting is phenomenal and it's something that a, exactly. main, a mainstream school simply cannot provide. But I don't understand why we can't have schools on the same site. We we've got we've got various exactly. schools now that are going all through. So they're they're three to nineteen schools. They've got a primary a nursery, a primary, and a secondary school in sixth form all on the same side why can't we incorporate special education into that and then you could have a lot more f- cross fertilization a lot more connection and a lot more children growing up recognizing that human beings are diverse and do have different abilities
1: yeah yeah and When I, my sixth form school was nursery to sixth form. So I was able to do some volunteering with the nursery just because I wanted to. And we all had lunchtimes together, year nine to sixth form. So 13 to 18. And that means you get to help other people with their homework. You get to converse with them and age becomes much less of a barrier. And it's the same thing with ability. And I don't see why we can't push for more sixth formers teaching things to year nines like you said you're repeating some of the lessons anyway because it's a refresher so why not combine age groups why is that not a thing yet
2: no i i completely agree and i'm sure there are financial constraints and all sorts of things but where you do get that kind of cross-fertilization you do tend to have healthier communities who are better informed about each other.
1: i think just school is a mirror of society. Our education system affects how our society works. So if we have an education system where you're separating people, whether for ability, age, gender, whatever it is, that's not a a realistic representation of society and it's not what we want society to be like. Um, I don't know if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers... Uh, I did a while ago, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He talks about how much of a drastic difference, even in sport, that age gap can make. So even those few months between being in a year ahead or a year behind, that can completely change your sports career. And I'm sure it has an effect on many other things as well.
2: Yeah, it does. It does. And I think, again, we go back to that purpose of education. If your purpose of education is to get children through tests then your focus becomes on do they do better in tests if they're separated by gender do they do better in tests if they're separated by ability do they better do better in tests if we you know sit them all in rows and dictate to them whatever it is whereas if your
1: well-being is forgotten
2: yeah but if your question is you know is the purpose of education to create a cohesive society in which people have the wisdom to change the world and cope with uncertainty and and accept you know that we we are a broad and diverse species then you get an entirely different education system coming out of that and that's not to say within that you can't have kids passing tests but your
1: focus is different and your outcomes will be vastly different how whichever way you swing it we test far too much in this country (laughs) well this has been a truly delightful conversation it's my favorite topic and i'm so glad you agreed to do this one with me so thank you so much deborah thank you for asking me it's flown by (laughs) i know it really has thank you so much for listening if you're enjoying the podcast you can leave me a review on itunes or share it with a friend you can also find me on patreon instagram and youtube and for more check out my newsletter and website www Staying with me until the end of the episode. To show my appreciation, here's a preview of next week's episode. Invisibility with chronic illness activist and journalist Jamisha Prescott.
0: Especially in the UK, we put so much uh emphasis on career and job. And you know, if someone says, Oh hey, like who like you introduce yourself, usually you introduce your career as well. And so when you get fired for that and you feel like you don't have value because of your disability in the workplace, it really does have a an effect on your mental health and your self image it really does and it's not nice and it's not your fault and you've and I and, and oftentimes like well, this is the thing as well like i'm quite transparent with my chronic condition when i when i work but a lot of people can't afford to be even because they know that they weren't getting those jobs you can't prove it but they know they weren't getting those jobs because they put their disability down and it's like uh, yeah yeah